Why should Christians care about history and old dead guys? Gordon Govins is on faculty at Western Theological Seminary. He sat down to tell us why he's fascinated by the reformer John Calvin. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So tell me about your research. My research uh, examines Calvin's understanding and his use of testimony. And that is a very broad description. And to be more specific, uh, I use a methodology uh, that incorporates epistemology and linguistics to analyze uh, Calvin's use of testimony in his theological works, as well as his ecclesiastical correspondence, as well as his sermons. That's really broad. <laughs> so what originally piqued your interest in Calvin? Elsian McKee. I took a class uh, with Elsian McKee on Calvin's theology, and I uh, was captivated by her passion for John Calvin. Um, she took the class beyond the institutes. And if you begin with Calvin in the institutes and you stay within the institutes, you don't get a sense uh, of the substance of Calvin and how, as I've called it to others, how sexy Calvin actually is. Um, it's when not you... Not usually the first word not, not to let, I'm, I, My job is to make Calvin sexy again as a Calvin scholar. Um, but when you, when you read and examine Calvin's works, his pastoral work... Uh, and his work as a jurist in Geneva, um, it takes on Calvin takes on a different dynamic than you can see in the institutes. Uh, part of the problem, I believe, in teaching Calvin is uh, he's taught in uh, theology classes as a systematic theologian, mm -hmm. but Calvin was a biblical theologian. He was a pastoral theologian, and the institutes were made uh, to be read with his commentaries. So his audience for each of the, the works are different yeah. um, and uh, slightly different. So that's how I got interested in Calvin. And you share some things with Calvin Ooh. in that you were both attorneys. Oh, that's right. I forgot. We, so do you want to uh, talk about how that resonates Yeah, sure, you? sure, sure. That's the other piece. Um, uh, most people don't realize that Calvin was a trained lawyer. He was trained in Roman law and he was trained in uh, Roman Catholic canon law. And you see his pedigree, his legal pedigree, or at least I see his legal pedigree, as a lawyer in his work as a biblical theologian. Um, he uses it in his uh, rhetoric, in his polemics, his apologetics, uh, throughout not only the Institutes, but also his commentaries and his, um, uh, and his, um, his ecclesiastical letters. And this is how Calvin uses the word testimony. He uses it as a way of proof in his rhetoric. And uh, from a philosophical perspective, it becomes a source of knowledge in his religious epistemology. Testimony itself. Is testimony, a source of te testimony itself as a, as a source of knowledge in his religious epistemology. Epistemology being um, his concepts of how you come to the knowledge of God. Okay, so everyone has an epistemology. We wouldn't call it that while everybody, down the sidewalk. But. Everybody has an epistemology. Everyone has a way, um, and different social groups have a way of determining whether or not someone either has something as low as opinion <laughs> mm -hmm. or whether their true belief, something that they truly believe, actually rises to the point of knowledge. The problem in our modern-day culture is that most of what we see on TV is opinion. Mm. 
and people are not held accountable to justifying uh, their source of knowledge. So in Calvin's theology, testimony is a source of knowledge uh, for him, which was very contrary to philosophy, which does not see testimony as a source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Philosophy sees reason as a source of knowledge. Uh, but the law actually does see testimony as a, yeah. as a way to, uh, to come to the truth. So my connection with Calvin is his legal pedigree. I have a legal background. Mm -hmm. And so it allows me to have a perspective on Calvin um, that is not unique necessarily because there are other uh, eh, one or two lawyers who actually uh, examine Calvin. Um, but I have a particular um, perspective on Calvin that I think a lot of Calvin scholars don't have mm -hmm. because of my legal training. So how do you see the unique way that he uses testimony as this way of connecting with, with knowledge? Is that individualistic or communal? Or can you tell some stories about how that played out in the community of faith? It plays out in his role as a jurist in the consistory. Okay. Because what was the role the, of the jurist? Uh, the well, the, he was a member of the consistory, and the consistory was a morals and discipline court in Geneva. Calvin, when he came back to Geneva, insisted on having a consistory court so that they could police uh, morals. And also um, so that uh, Geneva, the ministers in Geneva, could um, do a monitor on whether or not um, uh, people were learning evangelical doctrine, the Protestant evangelical doctrine. So the consistory court would call witnesses, and witnesses would give testimony. Mm -hmm. And testimony was the chief form of evidence in the consistory. Uh, so Calvin used testimony in a jurisprudential context in front of the consistory. Mm -hmm. But testimony also becomes a part of his lexicon, is a huge part of his lexicon, as he um, expounds scripture, as he preaches his sermons. He will say, scripture testifies that. Mm -hmm. Moses testifies that um, uh, God is a witness to my intentions in writing the institutes that my intentions were good. Mm -hmm. So he it's very much a part of his lexicon, although testimony is only used approximately 500 or witness terminology is used only 500 times in scripture. Calvin uses it over 20,000 times in his works, the works that we have that are printed. Wow. So it is... It he has is, totally grabbed that concept as being... Because like he's a, a lawyer. Linchpin. Because he's a lawyer, because he's a trained lawyer. And in uh, the legal profession, even during that time, uh, historically, uh, testimony was always the key source of knowledge, the key source of proof uh, in the legal realm. And as a matter of fact, one of the interesting things is that... Um, Within the Bible, uh, the church and theology adopted testimony as a source of knowledge and the terminology from the legal profession, from the history of law yeah. and the legal profession. Interesting. Yes. But part of my research has... has so he's uh, taking it not just testimony is sharing your story. I think in the church, people tend to think about when I share my testimony, it's kind of I'm just sharing my experience. But for him... It's more than that. Well, it's that as well. So thank, thank you for pointing that out. It's two things. There, there is a legal component of it, which is as a source of evidentiary knowledge. But it is also, as Calvin um, uh, interprets it and as he uses it, it is confessional as well. It is confessing. One confesses to their belief and their faith in God mm -hmm. when you give a religious confessional testimony. So my dissertation 
addresses each of those dynamics, which is the reason why it's taken me so long. Um, but it, it addresses each of the ways in which Calvin understands testimony. One is in a jurisprudential context. The other is in a confessional context. Another context is um, uh, the, the concept of a sacrament, worship, as a form of testimony. You are, you are testifying to your knowledge of God through your faith in God and Jesus Christ. So you're pulling all those things together under the umbrella of testimony and how testimony functions. It has many dynamics in, in Calvin's thought, the string that connects it all together. And this is the methodology that I'm using that testimony is always a source of knowledge. And, it, and, and in his use, it's always a source of the knowledge of God. Um, so um, anyway, so. Yeah. So go. tell me, I think churchy folks have one pretty common understanding of testimony like we talked about you mentioned that when people watch television we're witnessing a lot of opinion and there aren't always a lot of tools to to actually call that what it is um i think folks in broader culture understand testimony in the in the sense of testifying in a court of law when you think about testimony and understanding it in this really rich way through the lens of calvin do you look at broader culture and think about the way that we as Christians inhabit culture and see hope for like transforming or, or our richer understanding of that word. I, Calvin had no lines of demarcation between legal testimony and confessional testimony. In our modern day world, we would think of testimony either existing within a court setting or within a church setting. There is no line of demarcation for Calvin. For Calvin, what connects that is when you stand in front of a court, um, are you exercising your piety, mm -hmm. your knowledge of God, a, force, a, 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 a concept within his knowledge of God doctrine? Are you exercising your knowledge of God in telling the truth, your belief in Jesus Christ, your belief that there is a God in your faith? Are you exercising that? And then in your confessional life and how you treat others and how you testify to your faith to others, um, you're also showing your knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. So for Calvin, there's no line of demarcation. It's all, it's all based on God. In our modern-day society, they're, they're two different spheres mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for us. Mm -hmm. um, the two methodologies that I use to analyze Calvin's um, uh, understanding of testimony, my dissertation is not descriptive, not just descriptive, but it's analytical. Mm -hmm. One is epistemology to show that testimony is a source of knowledge. But the other one is, uh, the other methodology is linguistics to show that uh, his use of testimony, the actual use of the word as he places it into his works, what Calvin's meaning is behind that, that is different from a modern day semantic definition that we would have now. Mm -hmm. um, and the area that I use, the analytical methodology that I use is pragmatics. And in pragmatics, three areas one's pragmatics syntax and um uh and um semantics in pragmatics you which is actually very fascinating you 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 capture the meaning of the word based on the author's intent mm -hmm. what was understanding the author's intent in using the word what the author's audience looked like what they understood that's the chapter i'm working on now yeah. to show what what, what Calvin's audiences would have understood. Do you feel like you understand his intent? I do. And one of the, one of the fascinating things, one of the more interesting finds that I've, I've had, my curiosity uh, caused me to ask the question, 
was there a dictionary during Calvin's time? Hmm. Why did that question? It, because I wanted to know what dictionary Calvin may have been using, and therefore what was it, and also what was the dictionary that his audience would have would have been using that would have given the definition of testimony. And lo and behold, I found a dictionary. Robert Estian um, happened to create uh, to um, uh, to publish a dictionary that he compiled. Um, he was an exile from France who went to Geneva, and lo and behold, he was one of the publishers of Calvin's uh, Institutes, and I found this dictionary. That's super nerdy. And li- it is very nerdy. <laughs> sure is. It's very, very, see, I told you I'm going to make Calvin sexy. And, uh, and this is pretty sexy. And, what's uh, sexier than a dictionary? Uh, what's it? But, it <laughs> but in the dictionary are 30 listings which, which describe uh, the uses of the word testimony in French, in medieval French. All of them describe testimony in a jurisprudential context, except one description that says that which the Holy Spirit does. Estian took that from Calvin's philosophy, uh, Calvin's theology. One out of 30. And Calvin was a good friend of Estian. They were very good friends. Calvin uh, announced to the people of Geneva and his colleagues and his minister colleagues that Robert Estian was was leaving France because he been exiled or he had to leave before he got killed and he was moving to Geneva. So that's pragmatics. Uh, the, the, the pragmatic analysis motivated me to to go find a dictionary in the 16th century to see what his audience would have understood yeah. as, as the meaning of testimony. I mean, it is nerdy, but it's... Yeah, it's but it brings great. together this idea that truth-telling is actually a work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. And the work in Calvin's, in Calvin's theology... The work of the Holy Spirit, that, and he actually says this, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit testifies to the believer's heart. And in that moment, the believer attains faith. And in that faith, the believer then recognizes Scripture as the Word of God mm-hmm. and as having authority. And thereafter, when you have that faith, then Scripture, and these are Calvin's words, Scripture, the stories of Scripture, the figures of Scripture, then testify to the reader. A preacher, in Calvin's uh, understanding, testifies when that preacher is preaching in the and pulpit. Calvin preached a lot. Calvin preached every day every in day. Geneva. He preached every day in Geneva as, as, as long as, as, as he was healthy to do so. Can you imagine prepping a sermon every day? And people were, and he, and he preached his sermons extemporaneously. He did not have any notes. Uh, he preached him extemporaneously. He did a, a what's called lectio continua. Mm-hmm. I hope I pronounced that that Latin right. Um, and he preached through the Bible, started at the very beginning, and, and preached and preached to the end. Wow! And How many times did he make it through? Do you know? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I I, I knew that. I knew That's that amazing. information. It, if it doesn't have anything to do with testimony right now, I don't. <laughs> it's know not it. on the radar. It's not on my radar right now. Okay. <laughs> so when you think about. Uh, Leaders, Christian leaders, whether they're serving in a church or elsewhere, what do you think would change if they understood Calvin better and church history in general better? I took a class with Deborah Huntinger a couple of years ago in my MDiv years. This is at Princeton Seminary. This is at Princeton Theological Seminary, and it was uh, marriage and family systems. And one of the exercises was to do a genogram of your family. And it's a, uh, a diagram that shows sort of the flow of family uh, relationships. And it was something very powerful of, about uh, seeing your history 
visually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a part of that exercise was for the students to understand how that which had happened in prior generations actually affects you today. Mm-hmm. That's church history. In order for us to understand who we are now as a church and who we are as human beings, it's important for us to understand our, our ancestry, our Christian ancestry, and the multiple dynamics and the broken relationships um, and the violence, often in genograms, many of the things that form uh, the relationships that you will have with uh, your siblings and your parents are based on uh, violence uh, and a death. And that's all a part of church history. And as I teach church history to students, I want to give them those, stu- those, those stories. Yeah. Those are the juicy stories that they need to hear. How has studying history changed the way you view something as you've looked at that brokenness or well, the way that relationships have come together or fallen apart? Well, as a whole, when I first came to uh, the seminary, I had absolutely no knowledge at all of Christian history. I just knew that somehow the church wasn't working. Hmm. Just intuitively, it wasn't working. From observation and experience. Uh, just, uh, just observation and experience and going to churches. And, you know, Gandhi had a, uh, Gandhi has a saying where he talks about the, the power of Scripture, that if um, Christians actually used Scripture as something more than a good piece of literature, that it could change the world. And I didn't see that changing of the world hmm. as I was growing up. And in about two weeks of, of seminary, I started to learn how the sausage was made. Hmm. I started realizing, uh, I got to, to know through church history, uh, from the, the death of Jesus all the way through, how it's an interplay of human beings and the effect of fear, uh, sex, uh, uh, greed, ambition, confusion, power sounds like the bible sounds yeah sounds like the bible and everything it, it sounds like it sounds like most people's families yeah. <laughs> if they yeah. would tell their histories um so that was very profound for me and and it's it's the reason i developed a passion for uh for church history the other reason i i, I love church history are the stories and you don't have to make anything up. It has everything in it, even just the, the history of the papacy. Mm-hmm. The history of the Catholic Church has all of those elements in it. It's like the best reality television um, that you could, po- <laughs> that you could yeah. possibly experience through, uh, through history. Do you have a favorite story about John Kelvin? Whether it's like personality or leadership or is there something that you're just captivated by? One of my—, my, one of my um, Favorite stories right now is a is a is a story that I found in one of his letters. He's writing a letter to someone, and he's describing a gentleman um, who Calvin called a scoundrel in front of of several witnesses. And the gentleman decided that he was going to come to Calvin's house, and as Calvin describes it, use use the most deplorable language, and then assaulted Calvin and basically beat Calvin up inside of his own home. Mm-hmm. And Calvin called the the magistrate. He was arrested and and taken down to the jail. And Calvin went down to the jail and uh, and bailed him out. I don't know much more. I don't know much more about the gentleman. And maybe uh, it's, it's an one interesting choice of what, words for him. A gentleman. Well, you know, with, with 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 quotation marks around gentleman. Uh-huh. 
But it's one of it's one of those stories that once I'm finished my dissertation and turned it into a book, I'd love to do research on that story. Yeah. Because that would that makes Calvin it's the story that makes Calvin more real to me. Uh, he's a real person. He's a real. He got beat up. Yeah, by somebody who broke into his yeah. by by someone who uh, to whom Calvin loaned money, and 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 the, and the guy never paid him back. Uh, and then Calvin called him a scoundrel, which is the equivalent to a couple of bad words these days that I can't mention on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and Calvin got beat up. I think people like that story. When I tell people that story, they immediately see Calvin in a different... You saw Calvin in a different light based on that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a real person in a tangled uh, yeah. web of relationships. Well, if nothing else, Calvin it. couldn't fight. <laughs> 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 Calvin couldn't Calvin couldn't hold his hands. He was better at fighting verbally. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, he was much better at, 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 at rhetoric than he was at, as, as a physical fighter. Hide behind the pulpit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then another another cool story is his relationship with Guillaume Farrell, who convinced Calvin to stay in Geneva and bring the reform there. And, and Guillaume Farrell was much older than Calvin. Okay. And at some point, I think uh, Farrell was about 65 years old, and decided that he was going to marry a 17-year-old girl uh, and asked Calvin to, to marry, to do the ceremony. And Calvin refused his good friend because he thought it was scandalous mm-hmm. for, him to, for him to marry such a, such a, young, a young girl. So it's, it's pretty, that's a pretty interesting story, too. And he convinced Calvin to stay in Geneva. Yeah. When Calvin came, was coming through Geneva um, uh, on his way elsewhere, uh, Guillaume Farrell, it's a famous story, Guillaume Farrell, uh, sort of threatened him with God's vengeance if he didn't stay in in Geneva and bring the reform. So Calvin was on his way uh, to become a uh, to become a uh, uh, sort of a professor and more of an intellectual, mm-hmm. and he ended up bringing the reform to Geneva. Great. Final question. Okay. Was there anything really surprising when you started doing this research that made you pivot in a way that you didn't expect? Nothing. Um, well, <laughs> the challenge in historical research is you're always pivoting mm. because it's inductive. Uh, you're 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 not chasing a thesis. You're a detective. Yeah. You are trying to discover things. If you go into history with a preconceived notion of what you're going to find, you will miss obvious important clues and important information. So you are constantly pivoting. But one interesting thing that I found, um, I love this story, is the um, is when I started to do research on the etymology of the word witness and testimony. And it is a, uh, a, a, a uh, in its etymology, it's a, the, the Latin is testis. Mm-hmm. And as I did the research, I found out that testis in Latin means both witness and testicles. All right. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> of course uh, you did. You didn't well, expect that? Well, uh, uh, so well, think about this. Think about this this evolution. Uh, in the Neo Babylonian times, someone would give an oath mm-hmm. of truth, and they would grab their testicles, um, in a way of <laughs> okay. grab their testicles, in a way of saying, "If I'm not telling the truth, then may I? It's a self curse. May something happen to my offspring. May I not be able to be able to uh, to have offspring." Which generational? was huge it was the most important it thing. was the most important yeah. thing your your lineage uh and it's the reason why those two words mean the same thing because you testified 
at the same time that you grabbed your testicles. Mm. And at some point in, in the evolution of the Christian church, when the Christian church took over, they took that word on. Uh, and instead of uh, we have now we have the modern day instead of, uh, you know, someone grabbing men were witnesses mm-hmm. back then. Now you raise your hand up to God. Mm-hmm. And that is the that is the progression of I'm trying to keep this clean okay, <laughs> as much as I can. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to keep, you know, the history of witness right. and, and testicles uh, without making jokes. Um, and I'm keeping this clean. <laughs> I if, I was, if I were at a bar, this would be a completely different uh-huh. story. Uh-huh. Um, it would be received a completely different way. Also. Oh, and it would, yeah, the, the bar crowd would love it. You know, I'd use all kinds of... Do we of, see that kind uh, of oath-taking in Scripture? We do. We see that in Genesis. Um, and uh, when in two instances in Genesis when Abraham asks his servant um, to give him an oath and not to... Um, uh, not to um, uh, allow Jacob to marry someone who is non-Jewish. A foreigner, yeah. yeah. And a foreigner. And uh, he asks his servant to place his hand underneath his thigh um, yeah. and take an oath. I left it at that when I read that with my kids a couple weeks ago. You did. You did this. I on left the... it hand under the thigh. Well, there's We this... didn't go any further than that. Well, there is this There is this room that's supposed to be folklore. Um I was hoping I could prove it, but I wasn't able to, that in early Roman society, when you gave an oath uh, to another higher up, you were to grab the person's testicles and give that oath. Um, And it's similar to what happens in Genesis with with Abraham. Uh, He's asking his servant to put his hand near the covenant, the circumcision, and to give an oath to God. So um, when your kids are old enough and they're ready, I'll I'll tell them the full story. (laughs) All right, I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Gordon, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.